learning about how to make people laugh is maybe the best way to learn about how to well how to how to affect an audience how to make them feel stuff because if there's no jokes in your script your script is not realistic because life is always horrible and sad and funny hello i'm dave i'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together i need to get better please make me better i want to get better 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 acquainted with you today we're getting better acquainted with tom hello tom hello <laughs> uh, and it's always funny to to do that going into the show moment with people uh generally speaking but it's even more strange to do it with someone who we've basically just been having quite a quite already quite in depth chat. quite a nice chat yeah yeah um while we're waiting for the coffee to brew it's lovely thank you and we're recording today in my flat yeah the first question that i ask everybody is how do you know me now this is sort of multifaceted because i was aware of you before i met you and we're talking very briefly not to give anything away about issues of masculinity and stuff and i think the first time i was aware of you was the anonymous masculinity survey which i never filled in but it was sort of in my oh i should do that that'd be interesting but i remember seeing you on twitter sort of posting the results and stuff and i thought really i think that's why i followed you on twitter in the first place because i thought it was a really interesting thing to look at and a really interesting way to go about it and the responses were genuinely really raw and fascinating and some of them were quite unpleasant but clearly people who aren't bad people but expressing their more unpleasant side because it's anonymous yeah i thought that was really interesting but then to to, to fast track that having uh, oh and I think I saw you hosting did you ever host Spark London yes yeah I saw you yeah. doing I think I did a short story at one of those oh, uh, sort of on okay. open mic basis but right. uh, a long time ago but um, then I met you through my uh, frequent collaborator Felix Trench because we've been getting involved in podcasting a lot more recently and he mentioned having coffee with you and chatting about various other projects you were working on and then meeting in person, apart from that Spark London, I think the first time we properly met in person was uh, by Angel Station when <laughs> Felix and I were walking down the street. Right, yeah, one of those awkward moments where me and my partner were kind of going somewhere, but at the same time it was nice to see to you know, nice to see Felix, nice to kind of properly face-to-face sort of talk to you, although I'd seen you, because my experience of like how I know you yeah. came from... I mean, I think I saw sad faces oh. a night that Bridie Lee Kennedy was putting on. And I'd heard you as well on the Gods of Comedy podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'd, I was kind of pre... Uh, I'd already, yeah, I'd been prepared for sad faces <laughs> by that podcast. Yeah, yeah. And so well, I kind two of, of, two I'd of heard, sad faces. Yeah, right. I'd heard, yeah, two thirds of, of, of sad faces. I'd heard kind of in depth, kind of talking about themselves a little bit. Like that's what that show is kind of about. Then I saw the, the comedy, and I think I, I can't remember which of you I, I, I accosted afterwards to, tr- to get contact details so I could try and book you for uh, stand-up tragedy which is never actually that's never material no it never happened <laughs> with many many it's always like that you know you see great acts and then it's just like when the diaries align you know that's just the nature of, of the world there's so many there's so many acts that I've never had on stand-up tragedy which is good yeah. uh, you're not the first person not to book sad faces so I wouldn't worry about it <laughs> but no but I've, I've tried to I mean mm. your name is, is a perfect fit like yeah. Just, yeah. just hearing the name oh, I remember before that I, I think you must like, have spoken right. to Toby because I think I remember having this conversation and the name thing coming up and being like, oh, that'd be ideal. But I think the problem, <laughs> partly for us, I think the problem was that our remit in no way fit 
stand-up tragedy, like our sketches tended to be very, occasionally slightly dark, maybe, but generally quite light-hearted and silly. No, that's true. Yeah, that could have worked. I I don't mind a little bit of that in the mix, it's not Mm. a tragedy. I mean, the thing of it is, uh, it's about uh, variety as much as it's it's about tragedy. So I want people to kind of have an emotional roller coaster ride. And Mm. so it's good to have some silly, uh, so that when the next act comes on and talks about something incredibly intense, um, there's that kind of change. Like a palate palate cleanser. Yeah, and in fact... Ideally, the other way around, really. Yeah. Uh, end with the, the lighter stuff. There's definitely hard moments at end of nights. And at Spark, that happens quite a lot, too, because you, you don't know what the last story's going to be. And yeah. sometimes it's, it's a really... Like, the other night, there was this very sad story that someone was telling about, you know, uh, their ex and their best friend both, like, dying in the same year. And it was whoa. like, whoa, how do, I, how do I then kind of leave the audience in a, in a <laughs> yeah. nice place? So I think... A bit of silliness is, is not, not did, something that's a bad thing. I what think. did you do? Um, oh, I, I, I think I just sort of talked about um, if people are alone, you know, and feeling like they, they don't have anyone to t- turn to, be, don't, you know, be surprised. Uh, you'd be surprised at the fact that if you just ask for help, how many people will give it you, I yeah. guess, and that sort of thing, and no, sort nice. of brought it into that, which is true and it's not true. It's kind of, it's not a lie, but it's kind of like, I, I mean, I... I've got a T-shirt for the It Gets Better project, which mm. is a, a, a project about um, doing videos for uh, LGBTQIA uh, mm. teens who have, are being bullied and, sa- and saying, look, it, it gets better. And that's true, but not for everyone. Yeah. So I feel like it should probably be, it could get better. Yeah, it, Hope. Yeah, don't, yeah, yeah. don't give up. You know, there are possibilities out there that it can get better. But I mean, I think sometimes telling people it will definitely get better is a mistake one-on-one but yeah. I think to a big audience that's the best call it's a good well, it's a good <laughs> message to send because at least you know certainly I mean so much of that change has to come from within and, and realizing that everyone else is wrong and not you and you should be who you want to be I think that the part of saying it's, it gets better is you'll feel better about who you are which will give you the strength to get through anything that may come up that is difficult and that, that feels challenging and you know that sense of the world being against you which I guess is the thing which really occurs, I suppose, to any LGBT uh, QIA. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Cool. I'm, I'm, but, I mean, I'm, I'm no, a few steps behind. People have different, like, different phrases. I don't think it's particularly important in mm. a way. I mean, I've not. That's that's terrible for. Uh, I mean, the QIA is queer, uh, intersex, and uh, asexual. asexual. Yeah. 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 Um, some people say allies. Uh, other people say allies should not be in that list. Uh, as not one of any of those people, I don't think it's my my position. Yeah, it's, no. <laughs> it's it's not really for me to call. But as an ally, if I am one, which I would never call myself because I don't really like that word, um, I don't want to be included. So yeah. please don't is on that, my account. It's that weird thing of like when when I I raise an eyebrow when there's a you know a cis man who has feminist in their Twitter profile, and you think, yeah, are you trying to win points for that? Right. Like, and it's it's a very it shouldn't right. be, but it's I think it's just the nature of Twitter and the nature of that demonstrative social media. That you sort of think like, yeah, all right, mate. <laughs> and whereas yeah. you know, it's, I think when it's a woman's profile, you go, like, yeah, all right, makes sense. Right? Shouldn't we all be? But, no, I mean, I agree with that. I'm very yeah. I don't. I mean, I I would define as a feminist, but I wouldn't label myself on on social media as one. And I don't care if someone think I haven't got a right to be a feminist. That's, yeah, that's fine and understandable. There's mm-hmm. good arguments for it. Um, but like, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that whole kind of male feminist thing is a, a strange one. I particularly think it's weird. There are quite a few men who do it. A man who defines as a male feminist 
is weird. That like, is call weird. yourself yeah. a feminist, <laughs> feminist yeah. or male feminist. You know, nothing. Like, what? Like, I get why a woman would want to make that distinction because mm. they might want to criticize male feminists. But if a male feminist says they're a male feminist, like, that's like extra. But they're they're almost saying, "Give me." two cookies because I'm, yeah, a, I'm, I'm a, a feminist I'm a male know, feminist. and I'm a male one so I'm better because I could have been so much worse oh, you, know, you know you're not you guys know. Thank, thank me for giving up some <laughs> scintilla of my privilege or at least attempting to in some way right <laughs> through my Twitter status right right so yeah I mean we've established that we're both uh, privileged people who, who, talk, yeah. who talk about <laughs> uh, privileged people yeah um, but yeah the second question that I ask everybody is what do you do now uh, at the moment um I, well, I, I have been, uh, not very active at the moment, been in the sketch comedy group, Sad Faces. We've done a bunch of shows in London and in Edinburgh. I uh, am an actor and a writer and a sort of director, producer, show putter on a type for my company, uh, Crowley & Co., which has been running for about a year and a half now in some form or another. And, uh, yeah, that kind of covers it. I mean, without going into detailed plugs, it's... Uh... Yeah, no, and we'll get to plugs at the end, but I'm, and I think we'll, we'll, we probably will get into some detail. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, because, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's very interesting to me, like, what you're doing. I mean, I, I'm in a weird position of, like... So I haven't listened to uh, Wooden Overcoats yet. It's like, like, it's <laughs> like, I know when I listen to it, if I get into it, which I'm pretty sure I will, but I mean, I can't 100% say, yeah. but, but if I do, I'll want to w- listen to all of it, you know, so yeah, I have yeah. to find it the whole time. It's, like, binge it, it's yeah. like the box set TV problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in, in that respect, I'm not, a, I, I'm not a very well researched interviewer, but I have, Sorry. but then at the same time, I have seen Sad Faces and I've um, also seen uh, Radio Man, which is mm. a play that you most recently produced. Did you direct it? Yeah, well? yeah. yeah. Um, and also, I've sort of read quite a few of your blogs here and there, oh. where you sort of um, you do quite a lot of like sharing your process, which I think yeah. is so important um, if you're in the arts, like mm. so helpful for other people. Like it's 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 been useful to me to read about like you're building a you were building the set for Radio Man. I yeah. think that's the last one I remember reading. But I think you've done some ones about about recording wooden overcoats, right? More, oh well, actually, I can't take credit for that. I, I, I am, yeah, I am due to. to right? Oh, absolutely. Well, I am due to, <clears throat> to write some kind of piece on on writing jokes for wooden overcoats, which I should really get on and finally have time to do that. But we've all been pitching in little articles about that process because we do want to share how it all works with right. um, various other people. The uh, the one, if there's any uh, writers listening, the best one we've, we've had uh, for for a writer is, is David K. Barnes' How to Write a Sitcom. And it's uh, just a very, very nice basic guide to what makes a sitcom compelling in terms of its characters and its scenario and how drug, jokes are structured and things. Uh, and also, but I think the one you've read is Andy Goddard's um, How to Record a a radio drama with you know no money that's right and goes into detail about how we we found a music studio and turned it into a drama studio and right. uh, found the sort of the cheapest decent place we could hire uh, and how he then went about making sure that well he and John Wakefield the other producer how they went went around making sure that it, it could sound like a real proper drama studio so we wouldn't let anything down on the production side yeah I mean that was really interesting for me to read because I, I'm someone who writes drama I've I've done radio uh, podcast drama before well someone else directed it and they did try 
and ha- go for the studio uh, sound. They had lots of different ways of doing it. And this was this was years ago before mm. podcasts were on anyone's radar. Yeah. But weirdly, we were nominated for a Sony Radio Award. Which, well done. Yeah, it's great to be nominated, <laughs> but it doesn't actually pay the bills. No. Or, or, or mean that anyone listened to the show. Yeah. Um, but it was. But it. But, but anyway, I, I had that experience of doing kind of what you guys are, are doing with wooden overcoats. It sounds like, although as I say, haven't heard it yet. Sure. Um, but. It, at the same time, I'm at the moment sort of working on a, a show that takes the absolute opposite approach, uh, that doesn't try and make a studio at home, says what podcasts often are is the sound of people not in a studio. Yeah. And how can you use that uh, as a dramatic device? And how can that improve your drama and make your drama feel a little bit more realistic? Like, yeah. I, I yeah, like yeah. the idea of, of the bad recording being a super realistic device. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think... That, but that is not to say I'm not interested in radio studios. Oh, it's just different approaches, uh, exactly. absolutely. So I think it was really interesting for me to read uh, that article around about the time I was trying to do the opposite. And yeah. like, you can still learn stuff from people doing the opposite of you, as well as you can go, okay, so what's the what's the opposite of that? How could I do the opposite of that? And that's, that's, yeah, that's interesting. interesting. I didn't think about it that way. Uh, yeah, but that's, that's a good point. So if you look at it from a perspective, okay, what is that, what is that sort of professional sheen on a product lend... And how can I do the exact opposite and gain the exact opposite qualities? Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, and I don't know if it's successful yet. I mean, I, I know that the show is going to be successful, I think. Um, or at least you know artistically. The show is. <laughs> I know it's going to be artistically successful. Whether the audiences go with me on the idea of, 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 of kind of dirty, realistic sound uh, is something that I've been trying to work out in my time making Getting Better Acquainted. Like, yeah. that's what I go for. Um, I do have a listenership. I don't know if that listenership is there despite despite my sound quality yeah. or because of my sound quality or, or or most of them probably don't care I hope yeah but it works in it works in different ways well, for example I remember iTunes did a, a featured sci-fi uh, storytelling podcasts thing like they had the iTunes recommended store and I looked it up and thought oh I, you know I love I love sci-fi I love short stories this is right on my street and the sort of one of the first ones which had a gorgeous sort of uh, image like a really beautifully produced painted uh, image of a robot or something I forget I don't want to be too specific in case I shame the people involved <laughs> I don't mean to no no fair enough but it was, it was very very ambitious very long running billions of episodes out there uh, new short stories read either by the writer or a, or a performer and it sounded dreadful like the sound quality it was like unlistenable and it was things like just the sheer amount of hiss on it and it, also being recorded in a really inappropriate space, but it was, in, I mean, incredibly bad. Like I imagine, however this turns out today, it'll be streets ahead of that because yeah. at least we're in an enclosed room, yeah. you know, with a, a decent microphone. And I just couldn't listen to it because it was so distracting from the quality of the material. But then I, I'm not bothered at all by someone with a reasonable microphone recording in their living room. You know, I don't need a professional sound studio style quality to listen to, but it seems to be about, to me, to be about context and things. A conversation, for example, an interview podcast that's a little crackly and there's ambient noise, I think that works quite well. But then if it's a, a dramatic monologue read and it really is echoey and you, and some words aren't, you can't make them out, I think that's right. a very different thing. No, I, I definitely think you're right. And I think there's def- definitely different qualities in those things. I mean... Part of it is, I think, long form, I think, lends itself to the, the, the idea. If you're going into a long form thing, you do have the time to start to tune out mm. those kind of background sounds. I mean, we're recording in my living room, but there's a fridge nearby. I mean, there, mm-hmm. there'll be hums and stuff like that. Um, we're recording a quite a good... We're quite cl- you're close to the mic and I'm loud. Um, <laughs> and so that'll be quite good. But if 
But if you were further away and I had to turn you up, there might be a lot more hiss. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I would still put that out. And yeah. do. And, oh, no, we and, did. Yeah, and, <laughs> we've done that. And, 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 and I mean, I hope that that, that quality in this, in this drama series I, I'm working on will, will, like, I hope that the people will um, be able to get used to those sorts mm. of sounds and still enjoy it because the performances are amazing. And actually, there's some interesting things that say someone being a little bit too far away from the microphone, um, that actually says some things dramatically. Of course, uh, yeah. And uh, emotionally almost. Like, the, you, you know, someone being... You know, it's, it's interesting how these things connect between character and the way that you record something that you can actually sort of tell a story with with that which I'd not really thought about at all until doing that no absolutely well this is an artistic conscious choice though as well rather than just being like uh, who cares right. <laughs> it's rather than just going like well people listen to it anyway I guess and then that just sort of almost shows like a slight contempt for no, you couldn't right. be bothered to close your door before you recorded the podcast right but you know but then if you go this is a like a site specific recording like an on location record yeah. with the pitfalls that involves that's interesting yeah that's what I mean that's what I hope and I, and I, I definitely think as well that for me it's about content is more important than sound quality yeah and I think that that hopefully even podcasters who love sound quality they, they should still have that as their at their heart mm. like like you know, I mean, I know like some of my favourite podcasts, like uh, Helen Zaltzman's The Illusionist. There's lots of bits in that where the sound quality isn't quite up to scratch in different ways, um, but the content of the yeah. material is is good, and that's why she's using it. You know, so absolutely. I hope that I'm, you know, I hope I do as well as, as Helen at making the judgment on, on what's, what's bad and what isn't. Though, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't really know. I, I, I think sometimes it's easy to overlook bad song, sound quality if you're working with the material because you just keep hearing the content whereas if you're first time hearing it that's a different experience yeah absolutely yeah yeah yeah. so i mean how did all of this sort of start i mean you know how did how did what what came first what kind of bit of the arts did you get into first well i always think i think thinking about this quite a lot recently that coming in through comedy was a very interesting way to do it and it's what it sort of taught which I think a lot of people who, and I've had this conversation a lot with actors recently and, and other people who work in directing and such, it was a lesson in you have to make the thing and then put it on and then it, get people to come. That's the process. And you can have whatever sort of editing processes or quality control processes you have within that before the thing gets on the stage or on the internet or whatever. But fundamentally, creating your own work is the best way to get into any field, like any creative field. And um, I also, I, I, I'm very into comics and seeing small press people literally just do their comic and then sell it for two quid an issue. Like in shops in London, you realise, oh, that's a medium where it's just idea to page to get it out there. And that's really inspiring. So starting out with, with Sad Faces and going to Edinburgh and stuff, it was just a lesson in there's people out there who, if you go to the right places and uh, entice them in the right way, are going to be interested in seeing what you've got to offer. And uh, they won't all love it, but then, and you won't be graded it to start with necessarily, but you'll certainly learn from it. And there'll be bits you're proud of, and you'll certainly be proud that you're doing it. So I think that really, that was a, a fantastic baptism of fire. And certainly, like, I learned how to be an actor just doing Edinburgh for three years on the drop. I think it was my third year before I really was that discerning about my own performance. <laughs> before that, I just thought, I'd just do what seems funny. And then you sort of begin to spot patterns and work out what you do that does and doesn't work. So it's learning on the job, really. Right. I mean, that that's really interesting. So, yeah, I mean, when but when did 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying. There's loads of little bits I want to pick out in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, and deciding which one to go for. Sure. You started Sad Faces. Uh, were you already doing comedy before that, or was that the first time? Well, you... only with with those guys. Like we we would record little sketches by ourselves just for our own amusement, really. And I think we put a very this is sort of pre podcasting podcasting where right. we just had like this little website that nobody ever looked at, and we just put the files up on there. And it was just a bunch of sketches that put into half hour episodes and. Um, the big, the big thing, which is, is lovely, is a fantastic producer at BBC Comedy, Victoria Lloyd. She, well, first we entered a competition, because why not, and uh, did not win. But we ended up being featured as writers and occasional performers in the Losers Showcase show, which is play and record. I think that came out in 2007, the first series of that. So it was just a little endorsement and a little encouragement, and a little experience of being edited as well, which was very important. And then, so that was really just writing skits together, acting them out together, and kind of working out that we were okay at them, like we'd play them to friends and parents and they wouldn't be too embarrassed, you know. We were just, I think we were still at school at this point. And just after we, we leave school, uh, some of us go away to university, I, I start working. And so we, we had that experience recording the radio show and then we were heavily advised, well, you need to take a show to Edinburgh and get that working experience and also get your stuff out there that way. And then, yeah, Victoria Lloyd, who I mentioned before, she had produced Play and Record and she invited us to pitch for Radio 7, as it was then, for Extra Now. But uh, but it was 7 when they were still commissioning for it. And we had two episodes of just half an hour each of just our own material. And we got to record it in the radio theatre at Broadcasting House. And that was, uh, yeah, I just, I was so stunned. It was an amazing and surreal moment. And um, sort of, I think before, Oh, the timeline gets a bit confused. I think we had we had already written a lot of it before Edinburgh that year, and I think we recorded it shortly after our first Edinburgh in two thousand and eight. I'm fudging up this timeline terribly, but yeah. So then we um, then it went out like that November, I think, and after that we just thought, well, we enjoyed doing Edinburgh. We should do it again, and we were just doing the free fringe and um, no production value, just sort of homemade props and stuff, and. People turned up and quite liked it, and we started to meet other comedians and have other connections in that world, which is very much the start of feeling like we were doing it properly. Right. Like we were part of a kind of a world, and then it felt like, well, we've got a little foothold in here now, so we should keep doing this. Yeah. I mean, so you met each other at school? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, was it what, how, how far back? I've known Toby Wilson uh, of Sad Faces fame since I was seven. I've known Jack Bernhardt since I was eight. Right. And he was seven because he was in the year below. Ah, right. And uh, other collaborators we've had were Rachel Lerman, who's uh, the producer of the Royal Opera House now, which is quite exciting. Wow. She's left uh, performing to go into a far better industry. <laughs> and uh, I met her when I was about 15 years old. She was a friend from another nearby school, and we started all hanging out together. And she came on doing a few little jokes, but mostly to perform because she was quite into the idea of performing comedy. Uh, and then for one glorious year, we had Rosie Fletcher on board uh, recently, uh, famed for being uh, blasted by Tony Blair for being a moony-eyed idealist uh, for liking Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> by name. Like there was, a, I can't remember what this, I think it was The Guardian it was published in, but Tony Blair was saying Corbyn is nonsense, and Rosie Fletcher, this uh, sort of Alice in Wonderland figure, having these unrealistic ideas of you know being nice to people and paying them fairly, and that's quite a claim to fame. But anyway, so she, uh, I met her at university, I guess. I must have been 20, I think she was probably 18 or 19. And uh, yeah, so it's for one year she took part in co-writing and acting in our Edinburgh show. And I don't think the Edinburgh, the rotunda of just constantly slaving away Edinburgh was really for her. So she stopped being involved with the group pretty shortly after. But we had a good year. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, anyway, so that's the whole that's the yeah, whole uh, sure. uh, the roster of sad faces, right? And I guess as as three guys, it makes sense that you're like uh, fourth members have been women, yeah, because you know it's it uh, the Monty Python approach is not the uh, the, the the solution. I don't yeah, think. No. no, 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 not always. <laughs> not, not to say that not to say that there aren't great sketches where men uh, play women. Yeah, uh, there are, and, and I'm not dissing Monty Python necessarily, mm. but it definitely it feels a strange decision now. Uh, yeah, I think kind yeah. of yes and no. I, I think it's. And I, I mean, part I, of it is. I the, made radio comedy at uni, and definitely we played women. So I'm not. Yeah, yeah, I'm oh, no, yeah. Not, I'm, I'm not saying. Well, I mean, so did we sometimes, yeah, right. and occasionally uh, Rachel would play a, a bloke. You know? Right, yeah, right, <laughs> and, right. And Rosie actually, at some the point. best person for the part. Well, that's it. Yeah. yeah, and so pretty much it. Who's what's funniest? And so we kind of. Right. I think I remember yeah. very vaguely in sort of just living room rehearsals for Edinburgh, we'd be casting the sketches, and we'd sort of go, well, little things like going, "There's a doctor character. Why not make it, you know, the female character rather than just standard male comedy doctor." speaks like this and also things like well this is clearly a bloke why don't we cast uh, the girl and then this guy can play a sort of other role in, in there and yeah there was a sort of a, a very a very vague attempt to kind of uh, upset any kind of traditional cringy comedy tropes like like that like I mean, very vague. Nurse means woman, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah, no, and very vague makes sense as well, because it's like the funny, the thing is, what I don't understand about it is that's the more entertaining idea. Yeah. Because it's the less done. Mm. So if you you push back against stereotypes, you make more interesting stuff because it's new. Yeah. Um, Or like newer. Mm. Right, so uh, I, I, it, it, it should be something that's sort of like vaguely in the back of your mind, like you know, and mm. when you're making stuff, just because it's probably the funnier thing, like yeah. you say. Well, also we never wanted to have any well targets necessarily. Like we liked making fun of concepts, like Toby wrote an amazing sketch about how the news is really London centric and vaguely satirical things like that. But never stuff that's very topical, and right. never stuff that's terribly dark or mean. We didn't really want to do that. Right. So I think a part of that was us going, well, let's not just passively not write that stuff. Let's maybe just try and be a bit more conscious and, and, I don't know, interested in how that stuff is cast and why, and what opportunities you give to each performer in the group as well. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really interesting thing to be conscious of, and I think, I'm sure, it improves what you do if you are in, conscious of those things. Yeah. For sure. I mean, that makes it sound like we were making all the decisions. Also, yeah. like, Grace and Rosie never would have wanted to be lumbered with any just the straight women roles or, like, the, right. the traditionally female roles. They, it yeah, wasn't like that. We all made the decisions. That's the danger, I guess, if yeah. you're a woman in a, in, with three, three men in a sketch group. It's like you, you only get the kind of the straight woman roles. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, so that's, that's great that that's that great. wasn't the case. It's also, just, I mean, it's a number of things. Yeah, it's very, very crucial to say as well that, like, yeah, that Rachel certainly and Rosie both made a lot of decisions and, and contributed a huge amount to those discussions and working out what was best and funniest. So, yeah, I really hate to say it, it was like, well, the men made these uh, conscious decisions. Right. But also, um, it was because they were so funny. Like, Rachel and Rosie were both fantastically funny performers in very different ways. And so often, that was it. It was just, okay, well, Jack would be funniest as this person, and Rachel would be funniest as this person. And uh, I think we were right <laughs> most of the right. time. Well, that's, I mean, and so so it came out of school, like, you you started at school doing comedy yeah. together. So I guess that the comedy was the main, the main thing mm. you're doing. I mean, do you, do, you, do you mostly, like, direct and produce, or do you also write, like stuff uh, well it's it's funny because the last um just to give a, a, a brief cv for the last six months my <laughs> life kind of went our previous sad faces at edinburgh uh, doing a show called the dawn chorus in 2015 then straight into running a kickstarter for a uh, a season we ran at vault festival in, in waterloo this year right yeah, and then sure. into running that festival and then into doing radio man at the old red lion so 
I've I've really let a few things slip that I shouldn't have been, such as putting any work into my acting career and doing any writing. Those are basically the two things I've let slip, uh, which is a terrible thing. But um, there's been space here and there to do the odd bit. But when I think that I started out to write and perform, it seems crazy how much of, you know, these last six months have just oh, been admin. And, I know that feeling PR. very well. Yeah. I mean, not not as well as you do, because I think you've been, like you say, like you've just described, like, I mean, looking at your website, looking at your like Facebook, like the last like little bit of time, it just seems like you're just yeah. so busy. And when when I met met you tonight, when 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 I came, because I saw Radio Man, and then we did a, a live GBA afterwards, which uh, has gone out relatively recently, which was with James Hamilton. Um, but like that night when I sort of saw you, you know, you were like you were you were alive. You had like energy. Yeah. You, you were kind of like you know you were very kind of like it was clear that you were staying you know standing afloat, up yeah. standing up was a, almost a, like a, a by will yeah, yeah. Than, <laughs> and, and by actual was, yeah running on the fumes a bit yeah I think it's fair to say that was quite late in the month right it? it was it was very close so, to yeah, the end yeah. and so it was definitely when like because I guess it's like a mini Edinburgh like yeah in London well like, exactly for you, like because you're, you're like three weeks every night there or whatever was it three yeah, weeks it was four weeks four weeks yeah, wow, yeah longer than Edinburgh I know I know well most Edinburgh venues now seem to run for about that's four weeks that's true but, too but yeah. but yeah no you're right it was it was like that it was um, it was a funny thing I worried about being uh, I don't think I kind of asked a few times I don't think people were too bothered by it but you know we had a few conversations about I think this was maybe oh it's nice that you're here <laughs> like keeping check on it rather than why don't you go away but we talked a fair bit about how because I've come at putting on shows from that different perspective of wanting to be there and be involved partly because I was always in them before you know with sad faces yeah. but I, I I never felt quite right not being there like yeah. I, could, I couldn't have gone for the first few nights and then just stopped being there like I could have but um, I don't know it just felt wrong because I wanted to be part of the sort of living changing thing that was that show and and I didn't want to lose any sight of how it was doing and, and what we were finding out about it. Like even without having any further say in it, finding knowing what both the, the music mixers and, and Felix were finding out about the show on stage and the rhythm they were discovering. I don't want to miss out on that. That's sort of like missing your child's first steps or something. Like it's, <laughs> you know, it was, it was it's a strange feeling. It just never occurred to me that that was an option in a way. It's funny. I mean, I know what you mean. Like even like, uh, when I've taken Stand Up Tragedy to Edinburgh on the nights that I've been like had off yeah. and other people have been hosting, I often found myself somehow gravitating right back to the venue yeah, and, yeah. and sort of like walking past as they're flyering and they're all like, come on, go away, go away enjoy yourself. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, I didn't mean to, to be kind of looking, like checking up on people, but yeah. just something inside me just can't, can't stay away from the like you say, living, breathing thing yeah. that's happening mm. and might change. And you don't know what's going to happen, and yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. you know. But it's but it's also like it, I I just want to see what <clears throat> what does happen that I can't control. You know, like right. what what things that what better ideas about how to tell the story has Felix come up with since we rehearsed it, and you know that stuff only really comes out when it's in front of an audience. Like again, having done comedy in Edinburgh for months, you know, you know that like the show's never really finished till a week in because you've you found all these little beats and, and moments and, and ad-libs and yeah, I don't know. I just never wanted to be apart from that. I think the, I relate to what you were just saying as well, because uh, at the, the vault festival residency, the one problem I had was what well, I directed and produced uh, one play, which was uh, a comedy, the awkward ghost by uh, David K Barnes. And apart from that, and this was the nature of it. And I didn't want to be uh, horning in on anybody else's territory, 
but I was doing a lot of uh, a press, a lot of uh, just postering in the venue and stuff, a lot of admin, a lot of making sure the tech worked, liaising between everyone involved. But I couldn't really... I was hugely proud of all the shows that were on there, but I, I, I couldn't say that I a lot of them had much to do with me because I was so focused on get this one play done and then make sure the season as a whole works. And that was almost a lesson in... I don't know, I, I sort of took on... I, di- I didn't take on more than I, you know, bite off more than I could chew, but I certainly, I, I bit off more than I could enjoy, you know. Right. I, I had to kind of let everyone else do their thing and I wasn't around really for m- much of it to even enjoy it. You know, I, I was just there to make sure it all ran smoothly and yeah. that's that's when you kind of are being more of a producer than a, a director or an involved party. Yeah, no, I've had that feeling before and I've also seen it, seen, seen it happen to my friends and actually often, sometimes it's been like, that's been the the feeling they've started to have before they've moved on to kind of completely new projects yeah. sometimes, which is not to say that I'm like a harbinger of doom for your projects. Mm-hmm. Radio Man, though, interestingly, it's not a comedy, right? No. I mean, it's got funny moments in yeah. it, but it's not a comedy. Does Crowley & Co. generally make dramas, kind of magic, like magical realist stuff, or like science fiction stuff? What, what would you, how would you describe what you do? Uh, well, I, I had this conversation with Oscar, who's um, uh, Oscar French, who's a brilliant producer who works at the King's Head at the moment, and he's um, sort of done part-time uh, producing work for us. And the best I could come up with was uh, Good Stories Well Told, which is wishy-washy as all fuck. But at the same time, <laughs> I, think, I think it's, it's something that's important in theatre, I think, because if, to, to look over our body of work as a whole, such as it is, I think that something, the magical realism thing is a good thing. I think stuff that isn't just drama, nothing we've produced has just been dour. You know, it's never been too worthy or just... Uh, dry, like even the most sort of weighty thing we've ever put on, which was uh, Best Served Cold at the Vault Festival by Cordelia Lynn. Um, that was uh, produced by Caitlin Benedict and directed by uh, Holly Rowan, who, the amazingly talented team of people. And it had jokes in it. Like there were lots of laughs. It was also an incredibly harrowing thing. It was all about sort of men's rights activism and how young men get radicalised into hating women. Right, yeah. And it was, Felix mentioned that to me. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very, very hard. You know, it was a, it was a tough watch. It was incredibly moving. Uh, but it had jokes in it, like because I and I think that's something that I, I wouldn't have. I don't think I would have prescribed it in any of the scripts we were using in in Vault because it was so many different uh, autonomous creative teams working on them. So it wasn't my place to say really. But I think it's just more effective drama. And I think learning about how to make people laugh is maybe the best way to learn about how to well how to how to affect an audience, how to make them feel stuff. Because certainly something that's funny and then it presents tragedy to you. I mean, speaking to the guy who runs stand-up tragedy here, so you understand what I'm talking about. But it's it's that sense that it's if it's if it's if there's no jokes in your script, your script is not realistic. Because life is always horrible and sad and funny. Right. That's it's, a really good There's no yeah. realism. You know what I mean? Like yeah. even people in the most like darkest war torn corners of Sarajevo make a little joke to each other. Quite often yeah. Because of the fact that everything is so bleak, it does turn up the volume on comedy in those moments. I'm going to remember that actually. I think it's a good. Okay, you can have that. <clears throat> yeah, well, I think it's a good recommendation to to give someone like to explain why it's important mm. to consider jokes and making people laugh. Yeah, like a lot of the time, uh, it's people who are being very worthy who who don't want to put jokes in, right? Cause yeah, because they, they think it will kind of somehow 
dilute what they're doing uh, and make it less real. And actually, yeah. it's much more realistic if it's funny, like you say. With well, oh, had to have moments of humour in. Yeah, least. yeah. Have you seen that John Cleese talk where he's talking to some company? I think it's called like Video Arts. I think it's a German company. No, I haven't. It's worth. I think it's on YouTube. It's worth looking up. And it's him. It's like John Cleese on creativity or something. Uh, you'll know it's the right one because he does uh, lots of knock knock jokes in between his bits of speech, which are funny. And uh, uh, I'll just parrot one back because I like it, which is. Um, how many Hollywood producers does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know. Does it have to be a light bulb? <laughs> anyway, so that's a good one. But he's, so he's talking about how... Accurate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think for, for, for maybe for producers of, of all kinds, which of which both of us could be described as, so yeah, yeah. maybe we're the same as that. I we're exactly know. the same, exactly. But I think I might be a little mm. bit the same as that. Yeah, but in that talk he had, a, he had an amazing bit about... He was talking about seriousness. And he said there's a difference between seriousness and solemnity. And he argued that seriousness can include humour. So when someone says, you know, the most conversation-killing thing anyone can say is, can we be serious about this? Because what that means is, I'm not prepared to laugh about this. Right. Which means you're being too precious about the conversation to have the conversation, really. Right. Or at least this is how I kind of read what he was saying. Yeah. And he said, solemnity is, is purposeless. Solemnity is just adding gravitas to things, which doesn't, isn't, is unproductive. And you can be serious about something while finding humour in it. And this is part of a bigger conversation he was having at the time about creativity and freedom and play and, and how people, even in making business decisions or in, in coming up with marketing campaigns, you need that sense of play and creativity. It was a bit, it's a very corporate talk, but it's, it's really interesting, even from the perspective of, say, you know, a writer, someone who's very directly creative or an actor. No, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's worth looking up. And he's a solidly talented person, yeah. which is not to say that I sign off on everything he does or no. says. And particularly at the moment, he's currently... Uh, giving lots of opinions about political correctness, which yeah. we could probably do without. <laughs> yeah. Which, I, I don't know, it's a complicated thing. Like, I think sometimes people like John Cleese come at this from... They Maybe they're coming at it, like, you can sort of sympathise with where they're coming at it from. Mm. In a way, it's an extension of what you were just saying, of, like, yeah. play. Like, people want to have the opportunity to fail. Yeah, yeah. The opportunity to like, you can make mistakes, you can say anything and it won't destroy everything. We mm. can we can work with it. But I think it, it's a big leap to say that the that, that political correctness doesn't stop. No, people. exactly. I mean, like, basically. Well, in, in theory, political correctness, surely. And this is a conversation that like people like Stuart Lee have had far more eloquently than I will. But like, it's it's surely it's something which is supposed to include people and that doesn't mean you for example that doesn't mean you can't say an incredibly offensive word as long as it's in context it's, yes political yeah. correctness is the the idea that no it's not enough just for you to use a racially abusive term in a comical way because there is a sort of pushing down target there is someone who's being victimized they're the butt of that joke and yeah. not in a way that highlights an important issue and not in a way that uh, exposes a kind of this socially important theme it's just belittling you know and so that's why Shirley can use the n-word in a stand-up set and no one bats an eyelid because you know and I think he says at the end of that very set because I used it in the correct context yeah no um, it's interesting though yeah. I mean I saw Stuart like I, I had a in Stuart Lee's most recent series mm. uh, there's a there's a I think the second episode he uses um a term that I wouldn't use uh, he, he uses the term that isn't sex worker ah. and, and I was like Oh no! Even Stuart Lee, like I'm so like used to like any any, I'm enjoying a comedy and then suddenly there's a fat joke or there's mm. a, a dead sex worker joke. You know, like the nicest. You know, you think you're in a safe place of like a, I'm enjoying this comedy and then suddenly that gets thrown, and I was like, oh, even you. Mm. 
but then I looked on on Facebook and it, uh, not Facebook on Twitter and it was interesting. Like I saw uh, sex workers who I follow saying, you know, that's how to tell a sex worker joke. Like that, yeah, and that, yeah. And, and that's that was interesting to me. I guess I probably gone too far. This mythical place of going too far the other way. Yeah, yeah. But, well, no, but kind of. But I mean, for, I mean, to be completely honest, I've only just learned from you five seconds ago that <laughs> that, that is an inappropriate term to use to describe a sex worker. Right. Because I have no idea. Like I have literally no connection to the world of sex workers right. beyond you know generally trying to be socially aware reading up on articles about it like trying to be informed on the politics of right. of this sort of industry and, and what it means but that's how people learn I mean like 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 you just did and I think if someone was like if I, if I was like to say like oh my god you know and shame you for all of those times that you were unthinkingly using yeah, yeah, the yeah. word like that would be absurd and so yes that is probably unuseful un- mm. and I can see why people like John, John Cleese would react to someone who does that and sort of maybe g- jump too far the other way but I also mm. think the thing to remember about play, which John Cleese, I think, uses, he, t- he uses that word, I think, when he's talking about political correctness, is that you, if, if everybody is kind of like political correctness, or at least just thinking about how you use your words, because I don't necessarily think oh, yeah, the, yeah, the words yeah. political correctness have got a lot of unnecessary baggage on them, but, but it actually means more people can play. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. the thing. Like, like, so you, you think, oh, yeah, that means I can't use these words. But it means that if you don't use those words, everyone can play the game. Yeah, yeah, Everyone yeah. can get involved. Which it's- is also just, I mean, to put it in, to make it in a less high stakes way, it makes what you're producing more interesting because you're forced to engage with different ideas and cultures and, and um, just sources within your own culture because you're just made to think more creatively about it, right? Because recently I saw a, a comedy night with uh, a few acts on the bill and... It was just a small thing, but there was a there were jarringly two. I can't remember who it was or what it was. I think it was a public figure, some sort of amusing public figure. Like I don't think it was this, but like say John Humphreys. And when the phrase John Humphreys as a comic idea appears twice in two comedy sets in a row, you sort of go, uh, like, and it's as if the people involved in this are drawing from a very shallow well of references and and right. and, and life and, and in, listening to radio four it, well kind of yeah but yeah. less less so much that not even a class thing just like comically you do not have a very interestingly vast pool of ideas and that's one thing that i think is in terms of any play you see any comedy you go and see live any creative anything you want to feel like you're being exposed to new ideas and that you're something is speaking to you while simultaneously expanding your pool of reference you're experiencing something new and you're being taken somewhere new and it's just a tiny thing like that but that makes me think that you know one nice thing about political correctness is the idea that oh I you know I can't be callous and blasé about this thing because it affects real people okay well what what about that person's world let's say a sex worker or someone of a particular ethnic background what what is that world like and then suddenly you've got a far more interesting pool of references to take inspiration from which makes you work better so I'm happy to lose the right to cast racial slurs around for comic effects, no matter how funny, even in context, if it means you then have to go, oh, what's more interesting about this discussion than just using this provocative thing? Right. I mean, again, there's a strong artistic reason to do the work of these things. Like, so many people resist them just because they're like, uh... Uh, I'm being pushed, but actually, if you do the work, mm. you, can, you can make better better art. And I say that as someone who definitely has been defensive in the past and about 
ideas and pushed back and it's just taken me longer to learn these things and mm. I wish I'd I look back and go I wish I'd paid it you know I wish I'd been as quick as you were uh, to start using this new term like within this conversation you well, started using yeah. this new term. whether that you know whether that's just like in this moment it's easier I'm, I'm not promising it'll never slip out again no 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 but, but I mean I wish but yeah. I wish these things happened uh, to, like earlier for me and if I could go back and, and give my past self any advice it's like yeah, listen to the people who are saying these things that you initially think. Like nearly every time I've come to believe something greatly, I've initially gone, "Oh, I don't think I, I don't. Uh, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to think about it. Yeah, Pushed yeah. it away for a little while." Mm, no, absolutely. Well, it's it's tough, and it, it sometimes you can feel like if you lose a piece of, if you think you're living a decent life and being a sensitive human being, and suddenly realise you've been doing something or saying something all this time that you didn't spot, uh, which I think is a big thing about you know people's reaction to feminism on the in the internet right. so much of it is people going like but i'm an okay person and i i find that challenging and you go yeah you're learning all the time like we all are yeah like every person is and so that's why you feel threatened by this is because you've discovered something you thought you had it all sorted out you got past the age of 20 and you thought oh i know what's going on <laughs> and then suddenly someone went no you can't say that kind of thing because that or rather not that you can't say that kind of thing but if you say that kind of thing that's going to make people feel a certain way and then you, but, but I do that all the time and I can't be wrong about something, right. can I? So all of their feelings must be different. Yeah, they must be wrong about those things. They must be wrong. How can I be expected to know not to say those things? <laughs> yeah, for sure. But, yeah, but I think that's, that's something that's in all of us, but it's just a case of calling yourself up a little bit. And there's nothing wrong with having that reaction as long as you then go, well, hang on a second, like, let's look at this empirically. And, and the strange thing is sometimes discussions flare up like very rarely you get the kind of online Ferrari where the person who seems to be speaking out in favour of equality is uh, is bonkers, like, and it's sort of a strange discussion to be having. I remember the one example, and I want to add quickly, like the the one example I can think of this online of this sort of. I think if you were someone who was not on board with political correctness or like social activism, you'd say someone going too far down the politically correct route. I would say more it was somebody who was self promoting and <laughs> sort of stumbled into a world of trying to make a grander thing out of it. There was a bizarre thing where a lady was. Uh, arguing against Jonathan Ross hosting the, the I think it was the Hugo Awards or the Sci-Fi Awards. Do you remember this conversation? Yeah, I it do blew up this. briefly, and it was odd because I'm not saying anyone's terribly wrong in all this, but she sort of impl- she implied loads of things in Jonathan Ross's work, and it seemed to be just because he was a comedian, and so she was assuming that because he was a, a male middle-aged comedian, that he would, for example, make fat jokes. And this is a lady who was uh, not necessarily overweight, but let's say curvy. I don't know how she would describe it herself, but she very much saying that she was uh, a bit large. And she was, she said, I can't believe they've hired... Well, it, the discussion began as, I can't believe they've hired a man to host the Hugo Awards again. I should stop saying Hugo Awards, because I'm not sure it was that, but I think it was. The yeah. Sci-Fi Awards, whatever. Yeah. And, but, and this became an issue out of the context of the fact that he's done it uh, for years and it's kind of his thing and yeah on the one hand that shouldn't be the reason not to hire a female host for once uh, but that's an interesting conversation to have like should they make a positive statement by hiring a female host to show that no there's definitely a room for women in sci-fi and you know probably yeah probably vary things up and show more people that they can be included great but then it became this bizarre screed accusing Jonathan Ross of things he hadn't done yet where she was saying things like oh he's gonna uh, I've picked out uh, a nice dress to wear for the for these award for this award ceremony, and I'm, I'm going to be there. And I just know he's going to call me fat and make jokes and ridicule my nice dress. 
and it got insane. Like this was suddenly taken as as rote that he. It's the online thing of this yeah, conversation blowing up beyond its sort of reasonable I think terms. That those things definitely happen to a certain extent. I think that often often it's very legitimate criticism. Um, but then yeah. there's always people on the on the edges of that who maybe take things too far, and and that kind of can undermine the main argument yeah. sometimes. Like I can understand why people who are consistently frustrated by many many factors yeah get angry and maybe take it too far i take things oh, too far yeah. all the time and i have no significant things to push back against really no, exactly that's uh, i forget we've gone on to this but oh, but it's this i think that's that's difficult but then i mean ultimately when you look at it the people who are saying incredibly unre- unreasonable things against political correctness massively outweigh i mean the people who are <laughs> saying unreasonable things in favor i think when I, I remember that jonathan ross thing and i think it's an interesting uh discussion to be had i think many things that jonathan ross has done over the years have been pretty progressive and uh, have set new good uh, examples of yeah, how yeah, people yeah. and men should behave. Other things that he've do- he's done are also questionable. He's, yeah, yeah. He's, he's certainly very flirty and that can be kind of pushing people's boundaries or buttons or whatever. Yeah. Um, and he has made jokes in the past which have, have been, you know, what we would now call fat phobic or fat mm. uh, negative or whatever words we would now have. But he is also someone who was born in a different time and has reconfigured, hopefully, mm. his views. And I I think that maybe it's it's definitely not fair to say that he's definitely going to have make those jokes again. Yeah. But I wouldn't be surprised if he did either. Quite, yeah, that's true. I mean, it would. It, it, the, the other side of the conversation is you, you sort of think, yeah, and if... Jonathan Ross makes uh, offensive, fatphobic, or misogynist jokes on stage. Yes, he should be fired from the Hugo right. Awards, but I mean, he sort at... of should make them first in that context in his duties. Therefore. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, and... I think there's an argument for now after the BAFTA hosting by Stephen Fry. I think that he should not get to host the BAFTAs for quite some years. Now, this was the thing about self pity, right? That's the phrase he used. Was it? No, no, that's something else. He oh, did. that's something else. Something else. That's something, else that, that's something even more. Like, that's that's completely and utterly un- unarguably undefendable that's why he even apologised about yeah, yeah. the comments he made about uh, child sexual abuse of survival- survivors mm-hmm. but but no this was much less in inverted commas worse uh, things where you make quite a few transphobic jokes and, no, I see. and kind of his main thing was that the woman who won the um, the best costume award she, he made some remarks about the way that she dressed the way that she was dressed, and which were kind of like shaming her actual decision of what to wear that yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. Um, his argument is that he knows her and she's fine with it. Uh, I uh, I would say that I'm not convinced she is fine necessarily. I, I don't know if she if he checked with her before, and also I don't know if someone who's just been ridiculed by someone who's really uh, powerful is going to admit. Yeah admit that that upset them like why so often i think that part of the problem is people get too famous i think people <laughs> genuinely like jermaine greer said something recently about how trans women have nothing to add to the Indeed. feminist discussion and i greer i mean is another one who has gone too far if we're talking about too far that's she's it's gone too it's far. just i just find that so so often it's it's people especially people who have been paid and respected for years for having opinions and people who are very famous within that and have achieved a certain level of insularity 
you kind of go, what are you adding to this discussion by saying that? Other than getting your name in the papers right. and making a really staunch point about an issue that you don't, you clearly haven't researched and have no experience of. And that's what shocks me. And I, I remember I, there was something else at the same time, might have even been Stephen Fry, but there was some other figure I just went, too famous. And sort of when I sort of began to clock that that's just a thing that happens. No, that is totally a thing you know that's I mean? like definitely you, happening yeah. at the moment. Like people who are of a certain age are just kind of lining up to go on record mm. and saying really uh, questionable comments that then get them into loads and loads of unnecessary yeah, unnecessary trouble. trouble. Like, even if they think those things, I'm surprised they're not intelligent enough to know that they shouldn't say them. Yeah, uh, Or at least they can say them because we have free speech. But the problem is that, 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 that that's that their speech is so loud that mm. the people objecting to what they say... I mean, that's the problem really online is that the people who need to be shamed are yeah. too big to be shamed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the yeah. people who are too small mm. um, get shamed. Because they're, 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 <laughs> and, they're and easy. And that's horrific. And they have no control them. and they have no power to push back against it. So it's a very strange position. I mean, yeah. ho- hopefully we won't get successful enough to... Uh, no, exactly. To God, if anyone finds this interview, I'm, I'm dead. <laughs> but, yeah, but it's... Uh, it is a strange thing. I think it was also, who was it? Someone, an Oscar-nominated actress this year, said, who cares, there's no black people. I can't remember who it was. Um, oh, um, oh, that was a real surprise. Yeah, yeah, it um, was... It was is it Charlotte Rampling? Charlotte Rampling. Someone of that generation. Charlotte yeah, Ram- yeah. Well, Charlotte Rampling, yeah. I mean, a lot of people, even, like, uh, Michael Caine said some pretty... Like, around that whole Oscars thing, a lot of people said some contentious issues. Mm. But I'm very aware, again, like, we've strayed into this this territory of, like, being people who are... Criti- <laughs> I mean, at least we're critical criticising people who are in the uh, our own kind of field yeah. field and, well, and also I don't even necessarily like, like I, I don't judge them as people when these things come out I certainly don't think Stephen Fry I mean Stephen Fry has also had serious bouts of mental illness like there if he occasionally says something to what's going on you know what I mean yeah there it's, it's there's a certain thing of and also these people aren't experts in their field like at best Stephen Fry is a is a qualified TV presenter who and part of that job probably should be minding what he says, but isn't necessarily. But isn't part of this a production note anyway? Yeah. To a certain extent, the newspapers that choose to print these stories, yeah, yeah, the yeah. interviewer that chose to ask that question, mm. people who choose to frame these things yeah. are absolutely the pro- part of the problem. Exactly. Like, like you know, and I feel like a little bit at the moment it, it is like that. Any time anyone's interviewing someone with a big. Uh, a big amount of fame they ask them what they think about trans issues like it's like it's almost like they've got like a the, the, the alarm goes off have we had a famous person this week <laughs> say something that's undefendable uh, no we haven't uh, who, 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 who yeah, are we interviewing now uh, oh, Ian Tom McEwen. Hiddleston okay cool yeah. we'll just have a chat with him right about, right yeah. right well I mean I, Tom Hiddleston make him say something he'll inform because he I hasn't mean, had time to think about it Tom Hiddleston in his defence is it definitely as far as I know hasn't said anything oh possible. sure just for the record um, yeah but. Ian McEwen not, not, not quite as 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 uh, you know, Ian McEwen has. That's why I used that example. Oh, fair enough. I mean, it's it's crazy to the point. I mean, like, I mean, Richard O'Brien has mm. said anti-trans pe- trans things, and his career is made <laughs> <of> trans <laughs> peoples. I mean, it's complicated. There's more. There's there are, there is nuance yeah. in some of these things. There is nuance. I think there is some nuance in talking about Stephen Fry having mental health issues and also hating himself. Mm. Like when he's talking about uh, having no sympathy with people who are self. Uh, pitying he is I think certainly and and people have made this very good analogy of like when he left Twitter he was incredibly self-pitying about it Mm. and so it's ironic that he uses that phrase but I think if you if you if you 
if you have pity for yourself, mm. you hate yourself for having that pity yeah, yeah. and you take that out on other people. I've Again, done that. Yeah. I just didn't have a massive platform to do Well, it. that's it. You weren't one of the most famous people in the country. Yeah. And it, I think that's, that is important. And I think it's also a symptom of us putting these figures on ridiculous pedestals and then, uh, then whenever they say something, assuming that A, it's what they really believe and B, it's the gospel truth as far as they're concerned. You know, and, and the that stands for everything they're saying. Mm. And again, that is part of the media. The media saying, making all these these grandiose comments and pointing the finger and going, ah, you, despite being the most guilty of um, mental health shaming, trans shaming, like all this weird stuff. Like that's, tabloid media is the number one culprit of all of those things constantly, but get away with it through the veil of like, oh, well, we're just printing the news as we see it. And, you know, it's it's such a bizarre industry. Well, but, yeah. th- then they turn around and blame social media for the reaction yes. that people have. And <laughs> yeah. that's the interesting thing. I think individuals who, especially people experiencing these things, absolutely have the right to challenge mm. the narratives made about them by the media. Yeah. And that will involve calling out their heroes when they are betrayed by them. Yeah, like, yeah, and, yeah. And so that's absolutely an understandable decision to make. But the media that create that that tension between 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 uh, people and it, that is always the it's, problem. It's, it sells papers, doesn't it? In, it does. uh, in the uh, how are we doing? Yeah, no, we're doing very well, too well, because we we haven't talked about everything that I was wanting to talk. Oh, sure. About. Well, I mean, uh, political correctness, uh, good. Arguments getting out of hand and out of context on social media, not good. <laughs> That's that wrapped up. Anyway, what else do you want to talk yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, well, I mean, how did wooden overcoats happen? I mean, that's definitely a question I have. Sure. Well, that was... Um, there's various sort of apocryphal versions of this story that have been said by various people involved in the production. So the, the way I remember it, uh, Felix and I were talking for a while about projects to work on together before even I was putting plays on. And one idea he had was for a two rival undertakers across the street from each other video web series. And he had this idea that it should probably be set sort of uh, Georgian times or possibly the 1930s because that comes with some very nice sort of trappings like the horse-drawn hearse and all this. And I kind of said, well, web series is really expensive to make and no one watches them, so no, let's not do that. <laughs> like, I think I was as blunt as, as that and, and ambitious in many ways. But then I remember it was just after Serial had been out and everyone in the universe had listened to it. He said, how about if we did this as a podcast? And I said, that's a really good idea. Let's have a meeting. He then called me like, I mean, it might have been like an hour later or the next day and said, so I've uh, mentioned the podcast, The Bare Bones Idea, to my flatmate, who's David K. Barnes. He's a writer I've worked with quite a few times now. And uh, he, he apparently heard that idea and went, oh, that's interesting. Felix had sort of said, oh, maybe that's something you might like to head right or, or create, you know, properly. And then he went into his room and came out 20 minutes later with a plot for series one. And then after that, it was um, a chat that the three of us had in, in David and Felix's flat down in Brixton. And uh, and their address is... No. And um, so we were having this chat in Brixton. And we just fleshed out some basic ideas and running jokes. I remember we came up with the... Uh, the joke of the main character, Rudyard, who's uh, a misanthrope and generally a joyless man, takes joy only in the, the defeat of others and self-aggrandizement. He's, he's a brilliant character, uh, who Felix plays. I phoned him to say I was early, and I thought, what is the worst thing you can say to somebody when they answer the phone to you? And I thought, now look here, would be the worst possible. <laughs> he said, hello, and I said, now look here. And he just went, oh, God. And I said, yes, that's exactly the correct response. And that's why there's a running joke in the series <laughs> that, uh, that Rudyard always says, now look here. But anyway, uh, so <laughs> it's like his, it's his catchphrase. It's catchphrase comedy, really. 
Uh, it, it is a quite a terrifying thing to uh, to to hear as the start of a phone conversation. Yeah, that would definitely. I mean, I hate phone calls anyway, so that said would with really, real aggression. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that would really throw me off. That's the worst. Yeah, so we we had a little jokes like that that all three of us kind of began to layer together, and we named the characters, and and then well, we we had these two. Brilliant radio producers who were already friends and flatmates, uh, John Wakefield and Andy Goddard. And we, we, we'd worked a bit with Beth Eyre. Uh, I should give a brief shout-out, actually, to Zuta Law Theatre, who produced another serial that David Barnes had written called um, Drayton Trench. And, yes, he had stolen Felix Trench's surname for that. Uh, and then It's um, quite a stealable surname. It is. Trench's good, isn't it? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so they, they put together... They had this weird thing where they got to use the National Theatre Sound Studio for one day. So we recorded six 20-minute episodes of this adventure comedy detective serial. Uh, very, very silly. And, um, and I was in it and Felix was in it. And Beth Eyre was in it. And she was kind of the, a pivotal sort of tentpole of, of what we were doing because she had this beautiful sort of slightly serpentine, very RP voice like this that she did when it, with certain characters. She's a brilliant character actor as well. I think she's worried she's known only for doing that now. But yeah, she's brilliant. And she did sort of extra roles uh, in that show. And we just thought, well, that we worked out that we wanted some prominent female characters in the series. So we had the, the sort of the, the lackey in the funeral home would be... Um, would be Georgie would be a female character in that because um, if the rivalry is between two men that sort of makes sense with sort of male competitiveness and all this that kind of followed in the classic kind of ever decreasing circle sitcom vein of two men trying to outdo each other but then we had the mortician Antigone uh, Antigone Fun uh, who Beth played and it kind of went from there like from then we went to we spoke to John and Andy the producers who I mentioned out of the chronology before and um They'd already worked with uh, me and Felix on a few different projects. I went to university with John Wakefield as well. And when I was at university with him, I found out he grew up around the corner from me, but we'd never met. Anyway, that's a tangent. Uh, so we, we had this little team brewing, and then we sort of added to it, and we uh, found the rest of our reg- regular cast. And and you yeah. were all doing it for love rather than money at that Well, stage, love rather right? than money, certainly, yeah. And it was um, it was something where I think we were trying to find... I know David was really keen to produce something that he had total kind of creative control over as were the producers, really, and the, and not necessarily in a, in a, a dictatorly way. We had these brilliant sort of very open discussions between all of the writers on Series 1, and, and also we had read-throughs where we then discussed all of the beats and notes and what people found interesting or boring, or, or maybe they could have more of a certain character or less, or you know, and getting the balance right. It was a very open discussion, but we knew that we had a really good sort of steady hand in comedy structure and creating interesting worlds in David, and he sort of in turn knew that we understood the characters as performers. So this sort of beautiful kind of uh, rule of the core team of uh, some was <laughs> was beginning to kind of, we were beginning to flesh this thing out. But we wanted to create something which we had total creative control over and that we could get out there because that's one of the hardest things to do is find an audience. And podcasting is not only a world that Felix and I were both really excited about already, but also one that is very of the moment and hugely popular and is a direct channel to people who are interested in all kinds of things, as long as they're things that are listened to rather than read or looked at. And that's a hell of a lot of people the world over. And so we realised, oh, we have a bit of a Welcome to Night Vale uh, sort of appeal. We have a bit of a Thrilling Adventure Hour appeal. And we also right. have, like, yeah, and we also have 
Radio 4 comedy, we have classic British TV sitcoms, yeah, yeah, yeah. and There's all these different worlds. Worlds that would enjoy what the kind of thing that I, I, I imagine you do for yeah. all of the descriptions I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. And it's been quite, I mean, it's it's been successful, right, would you say? I mean, Yeah, I would say so. I, I mean, mean, certainly creatively successful, like from mm. all of the feedback I'm hearing, but also it's you've got an, an audience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the thing. We, we, we're always looking to expand it. We're, we're sort of advertising constantly on social media, even now. Uh, I can't really talk about our plans for a second series, but I have just given away that there are some plans for a second series. But yeah, so we, we're definitely trying to kind of just constantly get people listening back because what we have that a lot of other comedy podcasts don't have is a solid eight episode through line. Right. And some podcasts do, like some sitcom podcasts or drama podcasts go, we move in series. So we have, there's an arc that starts at episode one and finishes at a certain episode. With us, we have a very definite, complete product that you can completely listen to in four hours. And it's been slaved over, so every minute of those four hours is something that we really believe in and care about, and that is, you know, is the final draft of all of those creative processes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a so, lot of craft yeah. goes into it, mm. and it's especially when it's every sound effect has been, you know, foleyed up, and the producers have edited it all together beautifully. And there's music. We have our own sort of live recorded orchestra that we found ourselves and all this. And it, so it's, wow. it's yeah, exactly. It's amazing. Well, it's, a, it's a small orchestra, but it's based on amazing. The composer James Whittle put a band together for us up in, in York. He also went to the University of York uh, after my time. So there's a lot of like time, work, yeah. uh, passion. Yeah, and, like, absolutely. Uh, stress mm-hmm. going into the process of this. And it's eight, yeah. eight episodes is the, the first season. Yeah. And... I mean, but was it like a year to development up to that point? I mean, how long was the production? I saw this figure recently. I think it we, we called it an eight-month production cycle. That's probably wrong. I don't know. Felix, if you're listening and you know the real answer, tweet at GBA Podcast <laughs> to the correct amount. But I think we called it an eight-month production cycle. I think actually from the first germination of the idea, it was longer. But once we really started digging our heels in with the writing and the casting and organising the recordings, I think, from that through to the release was something like eight months, I think. And the, the you know, meetings here and there about how to create it, how to, what to call it and all that happened maybe before that. Um, and the very first Felix mentioning the, the Undertaker's idea happened a long time before that. I'm struggling to remember exactly when now. But certainly I remember there was a good long time be- between that and him going, what about a podcast? So I went, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Let's do that. Right. But, you know, but it has been a lot of work. I think what's marked it out is that everyone absolutely loved doing it and still loves working on it whenever we do a live event. or We just did, um, actually, the, the brilliant uh, Matt Maltby's amazing pint-sized plays, which is a regular thing that he does at the Pleasance. We closed the night doing just the just the first, sort of the introductory scene of fun funerals, the sort of main character's funeral parlour, just with me, uh, Kira Baxendale, who plays Georgie, the assistant, uh, Beth Evelyn Antigone and Felix Trench playing Rudyard, the main character. It's the first scene where I, playing Eric Chapman, the interloper, the newcomer in town, arrive. And it's just a seven-minute scene. We did it in front of people. And just doing it up there with the rest of the regular cast, I just had such sort of lovely... Immediate, it all washed back, all those nice feelings of when we first did this and when we first did it as a reading right. and when we first did it as a recording, then a live gig. And there is so much affection for all of it. Right, and you're a character that people like. I mean, appreciate. <laughs> yeah, well, quite. It's Despise, uh, yeah, untrust. Yeah. But, but a familiar character yeah. that they are behind. Yeah, kind right? of, yeah. That must be a really great feeling. It's a really interesting thing. And, and what's lovely about being the, the antagonist in it, well, the whole idea is that it's 
the way I was describing it early on before we recorded was so Felix plays the the horrible guy you like and I play the really nice guy you hate <laughs> and so I'm I'm like the I'm the the Apple store of funeral parlors and everything's really beautiful right. and gleaming and they're the old traditionalists and right. they haven't had to compete with anyone in a hundred years so they their firm has never moved on and it's the service is poor but there's no competition so why would they care so that's the idea but what I love is we have a very active like Tumblr fan community we've even had uh, fan art and even some semi-erotic fan art which is very exciting amazing but um, we you know we've we've sort of let slip. Uh, before, but we have noticed these things. I don't want to go into too much detail, but like well, what we've seen, but but we have seen these these little fan tributes, and we do appreciate them. And now and again, we, we try and engage with them on Tumblr and say, yeah. "Well done" or "Thank you." That's nice. Yeah, and but then someone put a post up that was just uh, it was comparing us to another podcast I hadn't heard, but I found that's really interesting that someone said. Oh, Eric Chapman seems like such a reasonable guy. But after the events of, I forget which podcast, I just can't trust anyone anymore. And I thought, that's amazing. I'm being intertextually compared to another character <laughs> or event from a different creative product. No, right. I just thought it was really interesting. interesting. And podcasts have that all over. People excited about crossovers or, or people people comparing things and writing their favourites list. And... But I mean, it's great that you've got an audience. But yeah. I think part of that must be that when there's so many people involved and so much work happening, mm. that that makes people kind of... First of all, that's a lot of people that bring people. So that starts your chains of yeah. people yeah. sharing the information. But the other thing is people know a lot of work has gone in yeah. and they can see that and mm. they know that what they're listening to for free, right? Because it's a podcast. Yeah. It's had all of this work gone into it and hopefully that means that some of them are paying you back after they've listened to it for free. I don't know how well, you're doing that. Well, we have a donation button on the website. I mean, if people listening to this right now want to donate to it for more <laughs> Novacoats, they can go and do that there. Um, but yeah, well, I mean, for example... I think it's right what you say. The thing we've been really keen to focus on is not necessarily just going for an audience of our mates and really trying to look far beyond that. And also uh, not just appealing to, say, the Radio 4 audience, which is a trap, like trying to pursue them, because generally they're people who aren't that interested in podcasting, which is, you know, that's a generalisation. No, no, it's fair. Statistically, it's people who want the radio and maybe the iPlayer at a a technological stretch, maybe they'll listen to the iPlayer. But um, so what we realised we wanted is like, oh, no, we want people who like podcasts because that's what we are. And so many of the, I think we're currently officially, our last milestone was 50,000 downloads worldwide in, I believe, just over half the countries in the world. Yeah. So most of this is is random chance. We got picked for the iTunes Best of 2015 last year, which is amazing, Uh, at least in the UK. I'm not sure about internationally. I think it might have just been in the UK. But certainly all these little things and a bit of like mainstream press and, and various blogs and just everyone who listens to it, who tells people about it has helped. And that... That audience for the podcast itself is is infinite, you know, because it's free and instantly accessible if you have the internet. And that we always, it, on all of our sort of uh, production team chat threads and things, uh, Felix is very good at always saying, new country is like Montenegro. And it's like, oh, great, Montenegro's <laughs> listening. That's great. Uh, I think once there was an African country where one person had clearly binged all eight episodes in a day because we just had eight downloads <laughs> one of each episode wow. from, from I forget which country, but uh, certainly a, um, a North African country. But... Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. But then what, what's interesting is then so far, and we've had some lovely, uh, just totally anonymous, unexpected donations on our donation button, nice. which is really good and, and, and helps us to sort of expand our planning for, for what we can do in the future. But um, the way we, uh, I don't think I'm, I'm speaking out of turn saying this, but the way we paid for the expenses back that we lost on recording episode one was purely done through live gigs. So we did four live performances 
two episodes each, which were done just after they were out on iTunes. So, you know, if you liked hearing them on there, you get to see them done live by the cast oh, the next week, which was right. fun. That's cool. uh, down at the Horse and Stables, which is a great pub and uh, gig venue in, in Waterloo, near Lambeth North Station. And um, then we did one final one, which was uh, which Felix organised, which was uh, the, the, the sort of the parent company, such as it is, of, of Overcoats, Audio Scribble, the production company. Uh, a bunch of people involved in, in that came together and did some ghost stories for Christmas. And we just did that one more show, and it was very much a fundraiser gig, and that was what cleared up the final bits of expended money. Amazing. And so that's how we paid ourselves back for that. Very intelligent. Yeah. I wish I worked in such intelligent... Uh, <laughs> yeah, but then you nets. do so much is the thing. You do so many projects that... say you do for a example, lot, but you do a lot too. Well, yeah, I do, but then so many of the... For example, uh, you run a lot of podcasts that have multiple episodes. So... For example, the time you spend making all of those, you'd need to do an insane amount of live events in order to pay yourself back yeah, for that time. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I guess your cost might be low, which is the opposite side of it, whereas we've hired studios and, and things, and maybe that's maybe that's the trade-off. But then the other side of it is the things that I do sell tickets. So there's a cost involved, especially right. with Crowley & Co. So right. far, what we've done is either is almost exclusively live events. Yeah, I'm silly. Every time I do live events where there are tickets to be sold, mm. I tend to... Uh, hire loads of acts and then split the money between everyone and so nobody really well, yeah, gets very I mean, much I mean, money that's uh, it. and that, that's the thing isn't it I mean it's uh, it's yeah I mean that's the thing that there are ways to make money but I always kind of the art always pushes me in a way that ends up not making money but I'm happy because the art is good but yeah, I'm yeah. not because I haven't got any money but then even <laughs> from, from a more cynical perspective like for for, for example a nice example is, is at Vault Festival when we did our, our season which was, was called The Locker we kickstarted it uh, to the tune of £5,000 and then we sold just enough tickets to break even on paying everybody the amount they'd been had agreed to them before we started. Like, so right. we had a set, and thank God, because otherwise I'd be in serious trouble. But, uh, but yeah, no, but we did it. And it was a number of factors. It was, it was the generosity of everyone who gave to our Kickstarter. It was uh, every ticket sold to every one of our own in-house productions. Crucially, I didn't take any money from any of the guest artists who came. Like, we had a bunch of one-night-only shows. Uh, numerous acts like a uh, fantastic writer and actor called Michael Longy. Kieran Hodgson did uh, his one-man show, Lance, which I loved there a bunch of them Mary Beth Morosa did Grey Wing House her brilliant one woman show and we had all these lates and I was I was so keen to make sure that they were not we didn't skim any of their money off because we'd been given opportunity by Vault and I didn't see why we should deprive them of taking part in that opportunity and um, certainly recently like in terms of trying to just keep the company afloat you start to make concessions like well okay if this is how much the ticket is, then half that money goes to one person, half that goes to a different thing that we're trying to raise money for. Yeah, and and that's that. fair. But you have to do that. But, yeah. but then it's good the, to be trying to be fair and being transparent about well, it. Well, that's that honesty is the most important thing with that. Two things and, are really important. Absolutely. But then, sorry, the point I was coming at this from was I didn't, you know, I certainly didn't make enough money to justify the amount of time that I'd spent on no. the Vault Festival season, but I did get to pay myself the same rate as every other director and every other producer on the project. And nobody made above the odds or below the odds. Everyone got what they were offered well, that's good it is good and that was a, a kind of a miracle you know yeah it is and it's a funny thing isn't it these miracles like we're we're for our new sort of show we're we're going to be having a patreon we're going to be mm. sort of doing various things that will hopefully mean we get the money back and we've sort of like done it with like the people we've had performing in it it's been like this is the amount of money we can pay you with the smallest budget that we've got now and then this is the ideal amount that we'll pay you in the future if we do get it back yeah 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 um that's been good um but it's definitely a kind of like 
we're either being really sensible or in you know yeah, no, 12 no, months time we'll go well it didn't work out that way so you know yeah no absolutely well I mean it's sort it's, of a gamble I guess well yeah absolutely well again it's it's that thing of well the worlds of comedy and smaller time fringe theatre which I would still kind of say I am Mid- the middle class of fringe theatre definitely you know? right. and it's uh, and like events running it's 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 such a, a constant discussion in, in theatre as to whether people get paid and also in comedy as, as well I think yeah, because I've absolutely. always done free variety nights before it's the night we call The Night because I like uh, descriptive names and um, that's something where no money's ever gone in and uh, no money's ever come out because they're free gigs but now we're looking to charge a, a small amount for each gig uh, certainly with everyone involved I've done everything I can to kind of say okay here's the profit split and because you know of the you know the bar spend deal we have with the venue I know that none of that's going to go anywhere like it's not as if oh if we don't make a certain amount no one gets anything right it's very much okay well money will be coming in here a certain percentage will be booking fees a certain percentage will be taken by the company the rest of that is you know broken down by percentages your thing that's why splits are nice because you can say rather than say a venue higher cost because there's no tier to reach it's just okay this much per ticket comes in let's split that out and that's something which you know comes under the banner of profit share which is a much maligned thing in fringe theatre but then again so many companies have never commanded the wealth or the ticket sales to do that and they haven't got the the reach or the manpower to to do anything beyond that such as guarantee equity minimum and some the, you know there are always sort of theatre blog arguments about no you should guarantee payment or no small companies can't afford to do that and ultimately the whole the only real truth of it is as long as no one's making above the odds and as long as people aren't expending their time unfairly right. on stuff they maybe you know have been misled about, really, right. then you're still operating ethically. It's just, yeah. you know, if you continue to not be able to provide people with much money, they might want to stop working with you. And that's yeah. kind of the... The other side of that is a company that goes, yeah, it's profit share. And then uh, and they go, yeah, we've got some production expenses, but we're making sure that we keep them low so that, you know, the, the cast gets something at the end. And then the show sold out with the most opulent set in the world. And then, and then they right. go, there's always ethical, sorry, there's no money. Uh, and then you yeah. go, well, I know where that money went. No, there's always ethical con- decisions to make. But I think, broadly speaking, I agree with you. The, the arts and money, it's a, it's a, it's, again, it's like the, the problem isn't with the people making the art. It's with the system that they're making the art within. Yeah. Uh, a little bit like, you know, the problem with people who say politically incorrect stuff is the people who print it. I mean, it's a similar yeah. sort of problem. That, people that, propagate that material. Right, all yeah. of us kind of at this level are, are trying to do what we can. Yeah. And however we manage to do that, like that's okay as long as everyone's being honest and open with each yeah, other. As long as someone's getting screwed, and, and no yeah. one's doing anything that they don't want to do. Yeah. So as long as if you're an artist, as long as you are, if you don't want to work for free, don't work for free. Yeah. Say absolutely no, yeah. don't. You have the right, and it's absolutely respectable to make that decision. Then, then fine. Then no one's been upset. But it is kind of strange when people are choosing to work to, for free for their own things. No, not for free for free. They've got hopes that at some point that money will come in. But no one needs people heckling from the sidelines saying, you should be paying people, you should be paying people, when yeah, you know that already. Yeah, there's and a, you just want to be able to be de- able no, Absolutely. To do that. I think it's often, I can't remember who began this conversation recently, but there was a big, big argument and... Some people from some slightly bigger uh, fringy venues were saying, well, obviously you need to have a, you know, an equity minimum agreement or, or whatever. And, and some people were saying, no, not everyone can commit to that. You're crippling artists. And, you know, and it's very kind of, 
there's always some high horse you can sit on with that conversation yeah. and rarely are you saying anything you're interesting you're just getting publicity which to be honest is all that live entertainment is about is getting that publicity yeah. I don't think anyone involved in that conversation made a bold statement that wasn't intended to draw attention to themselves and this is the problem is, is there's very little actual mutual support or encouragement you know for each other or that's furthering an artistic conversation right. or, or creating a better scene it's just a way to validate yourself and continue to keep the ticket money coming in and to continue the people wanting to work with you. And how have you go about that? Like, as long as everyone working on the project's fine with it, that seems all right. But then again, there are ideals we should be held to. But then in what way is making these inflammatory comments and, and casting, you know, using your own standards to judge other creative people? There are some really great companies who are still operating on like a profit share model after years of producing solid shows. Yeah. And it's because of the costs involved in putting the shows on. But then they, like a few of them that I know of are, delightful to work with by all accounts I've never you know, I haven't worked with them but still like it's it doesn't make them less of a company that they haven't found the it makes them possibly you could argue less ambitious a company but it doesn't mean that they should stop doing shows no absolutely and art is a complicated thing as well because it's not just uh, about trying to make money yeah like not everybody makes art for that reason yeah I mean I'm not saying there's anything wrong with making no, yeah, yeah, money yeah. from art there totally is but it's a it's it's a much more complicated question but I definitely think that there's a difference between fighting for rights or for better funding or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. people decide to 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 fight for for the arts and there's a lot to fight for for the arts Absolutely. rather than fighting against each other and I guess that's mm. a more general problem yeah. in society isn't it not just in the arts did you read uh, Sadiq Khan's uh, various pledges about the arts uh, I haven't no there was some uh, the stage uh, ran a very nice little breakdown of all the things he's promised including things like uh, blocking any attempt to redevelop uh, artistically interesting venues so which I'm interested to see because the Finbury is currently th- being faced with closure. Uh, I believe if the fans listening to this check that out because I believe there's a petition and things you can uh, sign and various bits of activism you can do to try and stop that but that's it's just interesting to me because he's come he's made that uh, as one of his like election promises he's come straight into office and here's an incredibly venerable uh, new writing theatre under immediate threat of closure and I'm interested to see whether he picks up the baton and says not not in my name you know like no, we're right. not going to have that but it's worth looking up because it, it, it seems promising well certainly, I'm, I am yeah. certainly interested to see how Sadiq Khan does I, I totally am pleased about him being the mayor for lots of reasons yep but um, he has got a history of supporting business over people, yeah. so I'm interested to see how it goes. But we shall see. I'm, I'm definitely not prepared to start criticising him no, at no, this before point. Yeah. Um, how many days in are we? To exactly. This? <laughs> what, three? So, yeah, I mean, so we. it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you today. Oh, no pleasure. The, the last question that I ask everybody mm. is, do you have anything to plug? Oh, yes, I do. Uh, well, <laughs> as we've talked about at length, Wooden Overcoats is on iTunes. Uh, I recommend uh, binging on Series 1. Uh, I can say some new material will be appearing on those iTunes feeds at some point in the near future. So it's well worth subscribing and uh, also giving us nice reviews on iTunes because that's always helpful. Um, also, for my own selfish ends, uh, Crowley & Co, my company, we're, doing, we're looking to do a bunch of live gigs uh, in the format of our variety show, The Night, which is, is getting, it's turning into a bigger and more exciting thing. Uh, so if you want to keep up with them, the best way to do it is either by looking at our website, uh, crowleyunco.com. That's C-R-O-W-L-E-Y-N-C-O.com or uh, at crowleyunco because you can't have an ampersand. So crowleynco uh, on, on Twitter. And if you keep an eye on that, we should have some interesting stuff to post for you very soon. 
Brilliant. Well, uh, and the last thing that I ask my guests uh, to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Oh, bye-bye, audience. It's been lovely talking at you. Bye, everyone. So in some ways, I held this podcast back a little bit too long to be entirely useful for plugging the upcoming The Night events, although there is one happening tomorrow. If you listen to this on the day it comes out, tomorrow on the 23rd is the next edition of The Night. But I have held it back long enough to make it a little bit more relevant in terms of pushing Wooden Overcoat's second season. So they have a Kickstarter going on and they're trying to hit enough money to make their second season. They're doing really well, but they still could use some help. So if you want to donate to help Wooden Overcoat's second season, do go and support their Kickstarter. Speaking of which... The show that I was talking about in this episode, the new show, which is coming out in the autumn, is called The Family Tree. The website is pretty much available already, but there's a few things we're still putting right. So we're still waiting on announcing it properly, but you can find out more about it at thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. But also, you can subscribe to it on iTunes already. There's two teasers to give you an idea of what the show might be like when it starts coming out at the end of September. And also, there's a Patreon account where you can sign up to support the family tree to help us to get the money to pay ourselves and our performers properly. So please do go over and sign up to that Patreon now if you want, or you can wait until the show starts coming out before you make that decision. And if you want to support what I do, but you don't want to support projects that aren't in existence quite yet, you can help me to make Getting Better Acquainted by donating to this show. There's a donate button on the SoundCloud page. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Facebook and on Twitter. It's at GBA Podcast. I've got some upcoming Stand Up Tragedy Presents events where we're showcasing four of our favourite performers doing their full-length shows in the run-up to Edinburgh, which is happening on the 13th and 14th of July at the Dog Star in Brixton. Find out more about that at www.standuptragedy.co.uk or follow Stand Up Tragedy on Facebook or Twitter at Stand Up for Tragedy, the number four. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm GooseFat101. To find out about my masculinity show, which we mentioned briefly, that's the most recent Stand Up Tragedy podcast. You can listen to the whole show in its entirety, and you can also find out more about it at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk, which is also where you'll find the survey results that me and Tom were talking about at the beginning of the podcast. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.